0: a bad man you're a very bad man tgif it's manson mitchell with gary manson suzanne mitchell a double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend manson mitchell you're on the air Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. TGIF. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour and very happy once again to be working with bad boy Benny Mathers at the board, our producer, the brain trust, all in one guy. How you doing, Benny? Wow, I appreciate all that. Uh, And oh, big hug, squeezy hug to you too. Uh, I hope you guys are doing okay. I'm not sure he yeah. wants to get that close. Yeah, right, no, he's got, <laughs> That's why I was close. stretching it virtually to you. That's I, what, okay. Oh, thank right. you, Benny. I don't want me no monkey pox. Come on now. Oh, no. <laughs> and it's showing up in Florida, of course, there and, uh, you know, in New York and so forth. Maybe one of several topics we will touch on today is we have our we'll very see. special guest, a hallowed member of our team from time to time, Dr. Caroline Heldman. Of Occidental College in Los Angeles.
1: You, you read half her bio here. Well, actually, no, we got a real long bio. I there are bios and there are
0: bios. <laughs> I
1: have to cut it down here so that we can actually talk to her. Dr. Caroline Heldman is the executive director of the Representation Project and chair of the Critical Theory and Social Justice Department at Occidental College in Los Angeles. Her research specializes in media, the presidency, and Systems of Power. Dr. Heldman has published many books, including Protest Politics in the Marketplace, Consumer Activism in the Corporate Age, Women, Power, and Politics, The Fight for Gender Equality in the United States, and Madam President, Gender and Politics on the Road to the White House. We are thrilled to be having Caroline Heldman back with us. We have many questions and she has many answers. Hello, Caroline.
2: Good morning. Good afternoon, Suzanne and Gary. Uh, so glad to see that you are healthy.
1: Yes. Yes. We're, we're doing just great. So many things to talk oh about. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. We got a list a mile long. Gary? why don't okay. you start us
0: off our, our coffee time conversation caroline was okay how do we open this interview at this point in time and i said "Ooh, ooh, i know i know exactly where i want was is there to go
1: anything going on in the news <laughs> a little here and
0: there as it turns out yes in a campaign year no less unbelievable and yet here's where i would like to begin dr caroline heldman with all of your expertise, your profundity, and your work as a professor, as a researcher, as an author, as an activist, pundit extraordinaire, with all of that, I just have to ask you, Caroline, at any point in this years-long process in your professional life, did you ever really think that you would wake up one day to a post row America?
2: Yes. Okay, so a little bit of background. I grew up in Washington State. I was raised Pentecostal evangelical and homeschooled, not able to cut my hair, or wear pants, so some pretty tight rules and regulations that went along with that religion. And one of the main animating uh, factors driving the uh, life view of Pentecostal evangelical folks in my community, Assemblies of God, Uh, was anti-abortion and so I as a child was taken to the front lines uh, outside abortion clinics with Operation Rescue and other organizations protesting uh, against women getting abortions. Uh, I will say I had an abortion as a young woman and I was very happy to not have encountered a little me um, with a sign uh, blocking my way into an abortion clinic. I have seen this coming uh, my entire life, and I say this because I know how well organized that side is. Um, it's I have an unusual perch into that world, and I think there's two things that, that uh, liberals or Democrats underestimated in this fight. Um, one is simply the organization behind it, right, which is, uh, when uh, Roe pass passes in 1973, the Supreme Court uh, protects a woman's right to abortion through the first few trimesters. Um, the uh, pro-life movement or the anti-abortion movement, I don't I, I don't like the term pro-life because that would mean you would accept and support uh, lots of, of programs for women and children uh, after they're born, but that's not the case. So let's use the term anti-abortion here. The anti-abortion folks, Um, as soon as that happened, immediately um, re-strategized and realized that they had a long fight in front of them. One of the the elements of that was a media fight. They needed to convince folks about this. And this really gets to the second point that I think liberals underestimate about this. They have framed abortion as murder. They have used very manipulative um, videos, uh, photos. They've used misleading data. Uh, about abortions, the number one emotion that women feel about abortions, by the way, is deep relief. Uh, this is so they have created uh, a narrative around abortion being murder uh, in ways that are very misleading and take a, a complicated issue uh, and misrepresent it. I believe, and I've been on all sides of this debate, um, but I don't think liberals get how deeply felt that idea is. Right, that this that abortion is murder, and so put those two things together, this uh, campaign to convince a certain sect of the population uh, that abortion is something that it is not. And the second is a really great organizational strategy and campaign. And it's well-funded because this is a cultural wedge issue. Prior to the late uh, 1960s, uh, abortion was something that both of the political parties had various stances on, but it wasn't partisan in the way it is now. Uh, the Republican Party took this and a few other culture issues and have used them as a wedge to uh, benefit to pass policies um, that are mostly about benefiting wealthy people. If you take a kind of a, a step back and you look at this, um, the Republican Party for the last half a century has used gay marriage, has used, uh, you know, now trans kids, has used abortion to uh, whip people to the polls. Uh, and really, I think the long game is much more about passing you know, legislation that protects wealthy folks. Uh, so going back to abortion, what did they do in terms of strategy? They went to the state level. Uh, they went to state courts. They went to Congress. So they've been putting pressure on the various levers of government for the last half a century. And what ended up happening in the 2016 election, and you had me on, we talked about this, uh, Donald Trump... Uh, Well, I should say Mitch McConnell held up the appointment of Merrick Garland intentionally It was all about abortion. And I was on all these radio and TV shows and people were patting me on that little girling me and patting me on the head and saying, that's a nice conspiracy theory. It wasn't a conspiracy theory. I know because my folks, I I still have, you know, I'm in contact with lots of Pentecostal evangelical folks. They were hearing from the pulpit that, okay, you might not like Donald Trump because this is not a man who follows a lot of the rules of our religion, but hold your nose, go to the polls, vote for him, because that seat is being held up so he can appoint someone who's going to overturn Roe. That was the strategy. They didn't actually hide it if people bothered to talk with them. So all the stars aligned for them when Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who probably should have stepped down earlier, she doesn't step down uh, strategically, I should say she should have stepped down earlier Um so all the stars aligned and then this happened. It would have happened eventually, it probably would have, if it didn't happen this time around, it would have happened in another decade because I've never seen a social movement so, so centralized and so organized. And I know this is a super long response, but yes, I thought this would happen and I, it, it happened, it was either going to happen this time around or it was going to happen in the next decade.
1: Wow. Thank you for that answer. And you certainly got my mental juices flowing among all of that. This is what I would like to say about it and to have you address this. I, I belonged to an organization a few decades ago, which was run by the Roberts Rules of Order. And I remember the premise of the Roberts Rules of Order is that the minority gets to be heard but the majority rules and to me this seems uh, you have to admire a group of people that would work for decades to get their way and have this kind of strategy which i i'm really not sure the democrats have but this is a matter of the minority ruling this is not what the majority of the people want So now, what happens to the majority?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, Suzanne, and you're absolutely right. The Supreme Court is a minority rule branch of government, and it's actually one where checks and balances, one of our basic democratic principles, uh, simply didn't work. Because in order for checks and balances to work, the way the court is checked is that the executive branch puts up a nominee, as you know, and then the Senate confirms that person or denies that person's confirmation. If people uh, tell bald-faced lies during their confirmation, the Senate can't do its job. So for example, you see folks uh, like Susan Collins coming out and saying, I was lied to directly. What she's actually saying in in a bigger sense is, I wasn't allowed to make an informed decision because this candidate, who now has a lifetime appointment with just nine members of this branch of government, lied to me. And so, what? So. taking it out of the realm of partisan politics you are absolutely right that this court and it's not just roe is making a lot of decisions that run counter to public opinion we have never been here before we haven't the court has done two things that are unusual one is that in in law schools and when i teach public law we talk about how the courts at all levels look at cases they will take a body of precedent or a case law um, and they will either. So they'll have a new ruling, and that new ruling will either expand or narrow that case law, it, it, the precedent. Um, what the court has done is now a third category, which is roll back a fundamental right. We've never been in a place where the court has rolled back what has been deemed a fundamental right by various courts. So that's unusual. Another thing that is unusual is Um, We've never been in a spot where the court is so wildly out of step with public opinion, and it's, as I noted, it's not just Roe, so you've got 85% of Americans who want some sort of exception for abortion, right? You've got 70% of Americans who don't want to overturn Roe, but it's also, I mean, let's look at what the court's done just in its first session, overturn Miranda rights overturn uh, sovereignty of Native American nations within states, so that's turning over 240 years of precedent, uh, give or take a few years. Um, They've also uh, indicated, hinted at overturning same-sex marriage, which is now, of course, working its way through being codified in Congress. Let's see if that happens. Um, They also uh, dropped the wall between church and state, both in their funding decision. Uh, They had a decision in, uh, I believe it was Maine, where they decided that uh, public monies could go to private religious institutions. And also this coach in Burnerton, Washington, the ruling that um, it didn't violate uh, the wall between church and state to have uh, him praying before games. Uh, But it went beyond that. Right. It was pray to play. If you didn't pray with him, there was some discrimination. So religious discrimination for who gets to play on a field. These are all way out of step with public opinion. And this is just the start.
1: Well, and that's, you know, I'm saying if you have a whole bunch of outraged people, that's the majority. The minority is this well-oiled machine So what do you do with a bunch of disparate people in the majority who are not organized to that same degree and taking it, you know, one step further? um, A lot of the states are now run by conservatives, and so it's hard to even get anything done in your state. So where, where do you start with that?
2: Well, and that's the same process. I, Suzanne, I think you're identifying uh, it's it's the same problem, which is that uh, state legislatures do not reflect the population that they're representing partisan-wise, right? The Congress doesn't reflect that. So if we, it, it, we can take this actually all the way back to early abortion efforts. So what we saw was the conservative party viewing, you know, the Republican party viewing the long game and saying, well, how do we amass power? How do we do this? Um, I will say that much of what they've done has been incredibly great organizing and messaging. Uh, Not all of it uh, accurate, not all of it honest, but incredible organizing. But what they have also done, and this is where I draw the line as someone who cares deeply about democracy, which I hope we all do, um, is rigging the rules, right? rigging the system. So how have they done this? They've been really effective at getting um, folks into the state legislature who will then redraw the lines to give their party an advantage and it's not just happening at the state legislature it's happening in congress so we see this very this wildly disproportionate number of republicans in these spaces given the folks they're representing um and then of course like stealing a supreme court seat all of these to me are about fundamentally about democracy um and your question was about what do you do when you have this branch of government? I would actually deem it a minority rule theocracy because a lot of what they're doing is openly being driven by one specific religion, right, Christianity, um, and they're they're not hiding it. Um, what do you do with that? There are a couple of options. Uh, they're all long shots. Uh, of course, you could change the composition of the court. It's been changed multiple times over the years. Uh, you know, the most maybe famous. Um, instance of this was actually just a threat to pack the courts under FDR's plan when he wanted to pass the new deal and the court was standing in his way. And so he threatened to pack the court. Um, That doesn't have to be an empty threat in the sense that you could actually put more members on. Uh, You would have to alter the constitution if you wanted to change lifetime appointment. So it would be a, a, that would be a more difficult process. So there are some options there, but of course um, with the the hyper-partisanship in the Congress, most plans to kind of fix the, the imbalance in our democracy, the ways in which our democracy has been eroded to benefit one particular party at the expense of representation, um, th- those plans are a long shot because of the ways the system has been rigged. So I, I have lots of ideas. I don't wanna to be too pessimistic, but it's at this point in time, what we're going to be living in is, a uh, minority rule, you know, let's call it a democracy
1: in quotes for a while. And that's what I was saying a little bit earlier about the Roberts Rules of Order. The minority gets to be heard, but they are not supposed to be ruling. And so this sounds like a case where the minority not only has their say, but they also get their way against the majority of people who don't want things that way. That is a very, very tough place to be. And I know Gary and I have had a lot of conversations about, you know, where is our country going? What is the next worst step that could happen? And, you know, are, are we going to become, you know, a banana republic instead of a democracy?
2: Well, in some ways, maybe we're already there in terms of having uh, a branch of government openly uh, Flouting public opinion. And of course, the court's not supposed to follow public opinion, but they're very purposely with this this extra seat that they have. Right. They actually shouldn't have the power that they have. And I. I just I remember when this was happening and Merrick Garland wasn't being considered, not even considered, like put him up and then shoot him down. But no, nope, they were holding that seat so that it would be open when a Republican president came in. I remember thinking we are in a new place. This, these are this is a rigging of the system that we have not seen in our modern democracy. Um, and I know sounding the alarm bells here again and again, this is how it gets worse. And I think it gets worse. Probably pretty quickly during uh off election years, the party of the president, if the party's approval rating is below 50 percent, you're going to see a swing of you know, somewhere the average I think is around 35, but 30 to 40 seats swing in favor of the party that is not the president. So, we should expect to see uh the house going to Republicans. Although, I would say that abortion and the anger around abortion, which I think a lot of folks are underestimating, for me puts getting the house for the, you know, keeping the house for the Democrats uh, at about 50-50. But who knows? Again, these are made up numbers in the sense that there is this big unknown. So we should expect to see, though, in a typical election, a massive swing for Republicans, Uh, Keeping the Senate is also, you know, a push. I I think the Republicans will probably take the House. The Senate will probably be a push or close to it. So neither of the parties is able to pass legislation without abolishing the filibuster. But let's imagine this: Republicans take take the House. Uh, Republicans. Take the Senate by one Senate seat. They abolish the filibuster. And then you have uh, a national national rollback of roll row in all 50 states. Uh, and the court will back that up. Um, you will also see I, one of the, the cases I forgot to mention was uh, the court robbing the Environmental Protection Agency from being able to monitor fossil fuels. So we see two branches of government colluding uh, to advance our climate crisis as you know, we're all experiencing these record-breaking temperatures and we know what is happening, we're feeling it. It won't matter because the folks who are pro-big oil and pro-corporate at the federal level um, are going to pass legislation. Are, are going going to either pass legislation or do nothing to ensure that we don't address that. And I can only imagine what comes next, right? Uh, same-sex marriage is, is iffy about you know, whether or not they're going to pass that in Congress this session. They're looking at that this week and next week. Um, I would doubt it would pass at this point, but it might. It has a very slow path to victory. But we should also look at a rollback in contraception, right? Uh, this basic right to plan your family. I mean, the Republican Party is not doing much to convince me that they don't view women as breeders at the end of the day. If you want to outlaw abortion and you don't want you know, people who get pregnant to have access to contraception and you, you want to reduce abortion, the best way to do that would be contraception. But if you want to pull both of those back, you're sending a very clear message about what you think women's role is in our society or people who can get pregnant goes beyond women, of course, um, I so I see it actually getting, likely getting much worse very quickly.
0: Okay, we're glad to pick up everybody's spirits here on Friday. <laughs> when you're a truth teller, you tell the truth. And, and so much of what you say resonates with my own thinking as I've been tracking these issues, Caroline. I can tell you there, let me pivot for a moment. We've got a few minutes at least before we go to break. Suzanne and I, for us, it's appointment TV to watch the hearings, the January 6th committee. God bless them. Godspeed in their work. And yet I must say to you, I'm going to follow this scary path because I think it's important that we recognize. And that is, as I watch this, I have the persistent feeling, Caroline, that as as everybody says, now, at the end of the day, if we do have a, a red wave to uh, whatever proportions and the house at any rate goes republican here's what's going to happen january 6 committee will be demonized far more than it is now worse it will be shut down and let's take it to what i call an absurd extreme not only will it be shut down but the people conducting the hearing in this investigation will be if not criminalized certainly turned into the devils who were going to be either not in office at the time hello liz cheney etc uh, adam kinzinger is retiring and with all of that who's going to take the place of these people you want matt gates marjorie taylor green and lauren bober to have important committee assignments because that's what's going to happen
2: Yes. Okay. So we're just going to go full-on truth-telling pessimism today. I'm I'm with you, Gary. I actually think that a big part of why Democrats might have slept on Roe is that we don't properly identify the depths of problems. We just don't acknowledge it. We feel like it might be there. Um, that will absolutely happen. Uh, the work of the January 6th committee is likely to not really go anywhere anyway, and we can dive into that more deeply if if you want but i i know that as soon as uh republicans take control of the house which they're slightly favored to do again that big question mark with the, the anger around roe um, they will immediately start investigating they'll shut that down and they'll start investigating the investigators and it's telling that adam kinzinger and uh liz cheney uh are folks who you know their political careers are over and they either know it or you know the, Cheney's still trying to hold on to, on to her seat, but in order to tell the truth about this threat to democracy, you have to put your career on the line. And I'll just say, this really isn't partisan. I'm, you know, barely identified with the Democratic Party because I don't, you know, I think it does a lot of pro-corporate things at the expense of, of everyday Americans. Uh, but if the Democratic Party was pulling these shenanigans, I would be screaming just as loudly. It's actually not about party it's not about the divide that has emerged. For me, it's looking at the long game of history and realizing the trouble we are in with our democracy. And we don't, it's like a frog going into water. We really, it's one, big chip away at a time. And we are already in severe crisis. We're in severe crisis because one set of folks who doesn't care as much about democracy has rigged the rules of the game. And they th- this has of course altered the content of legislation and representation, but it's also changed whether or not our, our democracy is actually representative like fundamentally and whether we can get that back.
0: I can recall taking civics I was in eighth grade i took civics this is how government works and to the people say well the democrats well yeah the republicans single issue voters etc what does all that look like i don't know because when i was in eighth grade taking civics it happened to be in the spring of 1968. so predictability That's already defenestrated. It's a matter of we follow the trends and we will see how this turns out. And honestly, Caroline, I can't say in, I expect that the Republicans will take the House. I'm praying that people like Herschel Walker will help the Democrats keep the Senate because of some of these candidates they're putting up. But beyond that, two years down the road, It's so problematic because Joe Biden, whom I respect greatly, uh, Suzanne and I met the man once, we shook his hand and proud to have done so, God bless Joe Biden, he's going to be 80 before long, and if he's holding out as someone who doesn't want to be perceived as an immediate, uh, instant lame duck will do, he's not saying whether or not he's actually going to run, but I think there's a a certain sentiment running through the Democratic Party that he's probably going to be a one-term president, and then who?
2: I think it would be difficult for him to give up the reins of power i have you know i i think he probably had some intentions going into it and and we have talked about this that he wants to pave the way for a new generation of leadership and uh kamala harris you know a, a black and indian woman uh first vice president uh to have multiple identities historic first it would be great if he stepped aside and, and she was able to step into that position. But as anticipated, um, she has been the focus of a very well-organized character assassination campaign, which has painted her out to be someone she's not. There are incompetent politicians. She's not one of them. And they're all over the political party, the spectrum. She's not one of them. But she's pretty wildly unpopular. I. I think he he might run again, and maybe we'll see some shift in in who's in the position after that. I will say, you know, and I'm of course very biased on this. Um, Gavin Newsom is a great policy wonk. He's also a good leader in the sense that he's a, a great public speaker, and he knows how to read the political room. Um, y'all probably got some of his ads that he ran weekend before last in Florida mm-hmm. talking about DeSantis rolling back rights. And then yeah. he went into Texas and took out full page ads um, regarding the new gun law in California. That is the mirror of the, the Texas law and going after uh, Greg Abbott. So it is clear that he wants this. And I think he would be a great voice to stand up to the what is happening with our democracy right now.
0: And this is fascinating to me. Certainly, I would vote for him against any Republican on the horizon, whether it's it's the big orange one or, or anybody who is a pretender to that throne, including and especially Governor Ron DeSantis. Coming to a campaign rally near you, folks, Florida is willing to share him with you, apparently. Don't blame us. <laughs> I'm voting against him in November anyway. Uh, but he will probably be reelected. I'm confident that he will be. But when you look at all these people and I look at the Democrats, what I see in terms of the narrative and, and that media landscape, the thing that I believe the Republicans would do with Gavin Newsom, not only make a big deal out of the fact, and, you know, there, there's rightfully some concern. He he was there without a mask, telling him to wear a mask that he's at this fancy party dinner no mask people all around him. That would be for starters. I honestly believe, Caroline, that the narrative is going to start to turn toward, well, don't you think that uh, Gavin Newsom is a little too metrosexual for the job? Because there is no bottom, as far as I can tell with Republican political operations, they'll go as deep as they need to go to get their way and win the day.
2: Absolutely, Gary, and that's a really effective strategy. Uh, Presidential contests are, as Dr. Jackson Katz has written about, always contests of manhood right what is the most dominant strain of manhood in american culture and so even when two men are running for the presidency you see all of this language of trying to out macho each other right so you saw Um, You saw John Kerry in in 2004 being talked about in terms of Botox and hairstyles. Same thing with John Edwards. In this last time around, Donald Trump went after everybody. He taught, you know, in terms of masculinity. He uh, offered to do a pull-up contest. Um, with uh, Mitt Romney. He went after uh, Marco Rubio and called him Little Marco. I mean, all of this is just this kind of masculine bravado. Um, So that would absolutely come up. The scandal around the French laundry would come up. The scandal around uh, the fact that he had an affair with a married woman. He was not married at the time. Um, That would come up as well. Uh, But the question for me is, you know, in a a post-Donald Trump era, do these sorts of scandals stick in the same way? I don't know. Um, But in terms of the Democrats and what they need to do, not to win, but to save our democracy, it reminds me as someone who's done a lot of, you know, I did about a decade of full contact fighting. And sometimes you're stepping in a ring and you know you're just going to get pummeled, right? And so you um, go in and you protect yourself as much as you can as the blows are coming. And it's hard to see forward right it's hard to see what comes next because you're getting pummeled so hard and what we need is somebody who can take that pummeling but open their eyes and look ahead to see what the next strategy is uh, because the strategy again is not about winning it's not even partisan we need somebody who's going to say our our democracy is fundamentally under threat here are the ways it's under threat if you think about what democracy is the three major components are uh, popular sovereignty, political liberty, and political equality. Political equality can be boiled down into one person, one vote. That, is jeopardi- that has been jeopardized by rule changes that give one party a disproportionate amount of members through uh, gerrymandering. Uh, the second you know, popular sovereignty is this belief that you know that, that government only has legitimacy if it comes from the people. But if we don't believe in it, and we're the majority, and we see these issues, and it's still functioning without us, is it a legitimate functioning democracy? No. Uh, and then political liberty, which is keeping the government out of our lives unless absolutely necessary. And at this point in time, all three pillars of democracy are, are have seriously been compromised. So we need somebody that. We need a constitutional candidate to come out and say that. And of course, because of the way we've set up our system, it would have to be a Democrat or a Republican to do this. And uh, frankly, if Mitt Romney were to come out tomorrow and say, I'm going to run in in the 2024 um, election, and I'm going to run on a party of restoring our democracy, I would be very interested in that.
0: That is hearing some solid truth, at least through our filters here on Manson Mitchell. Time for us to take a break. Oh, wait a minute. I'm I'm about to channel David Brinkley here. We're talking with Caroline Heldman. We like her. She's important. We love her voice. We love the way she looks on TV. And we want to hear more of what she has to say. So we'll be, and if you just tweak it a little bit, you're channeling Barack Obama and he's still in the body. (laughs) So we are having fun of the intellectual sort with Dr. Caroline Heldman of Occidental College in Los Angeles. When we come back, more topics are there not always more topics along the uh, entire spectrum of political life in America. Give us a couple of minutes. We will be right back on AM 1150. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Caroline Heldman, political pundit and professor of politics to discuss recent events from an historical perspective.
1: On Saturday, Michael John Fierro shares his analysis of our country's numerological standing and what we can look for based on this esoteric science.
0: Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007.
1: We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150
0: like us on facebook facebook.com slash 1150
1: kknw welcome back to manson mitchell and our very special guest this hour dr caroline heldman dr heldman you have written some wonderful books gary and i have some of them on our shelves please let our listeners know uh, about your books about um you know how they can get in touch with you if you have a website anything like that
2: thank you for that. Yeah, you can connect uh, DrCarolineHeldman.com and purchase, I think I'm up to seven books. Uh, I have a new one coming out in September called The Sexy Lie, The War on Women's Bodies and How You Can Fight Back, which is about... Uh, media messaging and sexual objectification and what girls and women are taught about their place in the world through that. So uh, that'll be out uh, shortly. And we also, uh, I'm working on a a new book on media and power that looks at the role of media in shaping our attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors. So that'll be out next year. But if you want to follow me, it's Caroline Heldman on Twitter, Instagram, uh, and Facebook, and TikTok. I'm not really on TikTok, but feel free to follow me and I'll, I'll look at your videos and repost them. I will say I'm not a big fan of this Instagram um, update, not that anyone asked, but I'm glad to hear they're maybe gonna go back to, you know, focusing on photos, which is their strength.
1: Very good, thank you.
0: Let me ask you just because I have the opportunity now, Caroline, there. this is a bit of an off the wall question. It has to do with media and politics. When I was in, still in high school and then as an undergrad, In college, I found myself with I was really on the fence, I must tell you, because there was some stuff that just didn't ring true for me. But nevertheless, I used to read with great fascination the metaphors, the the narratives, the journalistic coverage of conventions put out by Norman Mailer. Not exactly your favorite feminist on the block, but Norman Mailer, an extraordinary personality in every way and one who gladly took up the mantle, just of his own volition, uh, taking over for Papa Hemingway, he decided he was going to be the heavyweight champion of literature. And there were the celebrated battles, the feud between he and Gorby Vidal, for example. Then you have the gonzo journalism movement with uh, Dr. Thompson there and, and all of that uh, going on. There, When you were learning to do all the things that you do and you were amassing this corpus of knowledge and political insight, it seems like... For women, it could be a it'd be and feminism was there. The movement was going strong, no doubt about it. ERA, big issue, but it seemed like these were very uh, tough cross currents in terms of gender gender driven politics. Who was going to be the voice of the left? Who would be the voices of the right? And who was going to dominate the media landscape in the time before? Fox News, before Newsmax and Breitbart and all of those, before MSNBC, how did you find your niche to become the person that you are and to express your voice when it's a pretty crowded field just with the men?
2: Well, you know, I I don't love party politics. And so I guess I came into it not really thinking about it in terms of um sorting into conservative or liberal um, i'm a way left uh liberal with a libertarian strength something fierce i think a lot of americans are are probably some version of that um, so i got into i was recruited to do media i'm actually somebody who who likes to operate things behind the scenes um, i'm not somebody who wants or seeks attention but i was recruited to talk about things and uh, talk about them from uh, what I'd like to think of as a data-driven and, and history-driven perspective, and then that ends up, you know, getting me in the in the category of being on the left. Um, it's not to say that there aren't people who are data-driven and uh, historically grounded on the right. I just think they're few and far between. Um, but I actually have great disdain for for most of the partisan media establishment, whether it's on the left uh, or the right, in the sense that their goal isn't really to get to the bottom of it or understand the root problems or educate. Um, At the end of the day, Fox, which, you know, I was over at Fox for many years um, as a political commentator, um, I can speak directly to the fact that they specifically took headlines, that they set the agenda, they talked about specific issues so that they could um, shape your your opinion, and by and large, it required a very high level of misinformation i don't love the both ciderism of like fox and msnbc because msnbc actually starts with something in the end which starts with an event or a fact and seeks to better understand it. And do they do it through a liberal perspective? Absolutely. That's not Fox's goal. So what we've had is we've had a number of news organizations like Fox, Breitbart, uh, Gateway Pundit. I you know, probably shouldn't even say their names because then people will check them out. But their goal is to actually misinform. They're, they're not starting from something and then trying to understand it from a conservative perspective. There are plenty of outlets that do that, right? I would say the Wall Street Journal, um, that is what they're doing, right? Uh, the Economist by and large, that that's what they're doing. Um, But these new, relatively new now, I guess, 30 years old outlets have come in and they're, they're uh, hiding in this ecosphere uh, where they're, they're actually a very different creature. And if we look at what has happened with the division in our country, you can trace it to the Fox effect, and then that was amplified by the rise of social media. And so you have a vast swath of the electorate who is receiving a steady dose of misinformation intended to rile their emotions and their fears, turn them against other Americans, take action all to what end, to vote for policies of one party that benefit billionaires and corporations. And I know it's not that simple, but at the end of the day, it sort of is.
0: I'm so curious about the power of a few words. Let me be hypothetical for just a moment, Caroline. Uh, What if one of the times you were on uh, Fox with uh, someone who... uh, (laughs) <laughs> managed to enrich himself by getting fired is what it looks like to me with all the money to get rid of some people you don't want around you got to pay the millions of dollars man i'll tell you if it weren't for morals i'd get in on that action you know but if you have when you're there and you're being interviewed what is the thing they call when they run the uh i, I just call it like a little uh leaderboard of sorts what do they, what is the technical term for when if for example if you're on a given show on fox and then uh, i'm watching you and i look at it and what if it said something like Heldman decrees Trump, quote, a bum, And they put that on there because there's that spin and they want to create controversy. That's what I see with all of them to some extent. But Fox News seems to have whittled that kind of thing, that propaganda, down to a science.
2: Absolutely. Their cryons are, you know, they're known uh, in the industry for doing precisely that. Um, I... To take a step back, there are three primary ways in which media can uh, attempt to influence us like media uh, content creators. The first is agenda setting, which is you know what what we're looking at, what we're talking about. Um, so putting things on the agenda or specifically not putting things on the agenda. For example, Fox News not showing the January 6th hearings would be an example of agenda setting on their part. And those are the folks who need to hear these facts the most. Uh, the second is uh, primary media effect um is um framing and that's the the way in which you talk about a an event um or a topic right so the the frames that you bring to the table so we can bring a liberal frame a conservative frame you can bring a capitalist frame um there are lots of different angles you might take on a subject and the third is priming which are the specific um types of uh, or specific aspects of the story that you ask the reader to focus on so it's like a mini agenda setting uh and so what we see is fox masterfully manipulating all three of these and as you called it it's it's propaganda in the sense that The goal is not to inform. The goal is not to educate or raise awareness. The goal is to get the viewers to believe a thing because that thing, if they believe that and their beliefs and their attitudes are shaped by that, then they're likely to take behaviors that reflect that. And it's a pretty straightforward model. Somebody is using it to, um, you know, really using it uh, quite masterfully at Fox. And they also do another thing is they, you know, they, they call in, um, really pretty people to say these things, to read it. So they, I will say Fox understands the optics of news in a way that the other stations simply do not. So they're able to run this propaganda machine and it looks great. And you have all these beautiful people uh, or handsome people. Let's gender that saying, you know, sharing this information. And um, they're not necessarily experts. In fact, at the end of the day, by and large, those two things tend to not go together. But it doesn't matter because you're, you're just you have a personality who reaches your audience and says these things, but really the message is centralized. And I'll say this because I worked on a lot of different shows there. The message that comes down, the framing, the priming, the agenda setting, it's coming from all of them. All of the teams are using the same tools. Um, So to, to kind of wrap up media effects, media does not tell us what to think, but it does tell us what to think about and how to think about it
0: how they're shaping, shaping news and shaping views. And what I also noticed, Caroline, is that, and this was true of the uh, the late Rush Limbaugh, El Rushbo, there, he was the one that kind of set the table and showed everybody how you do it. Never, uh, Reason had no place at the table with a guy like Rush Limbaugh. And I don't see it having much of a chance on Fox News, because on the right, it seems to me that, the prime imperative and the directive that follows throughout all these news and propaganda outlets is keep the viewers but not just keep them keep them dissatisfied keep them in a state of unaddressed grievance so that whenever they watch they're getting fired up because they always for some unexplained reason keep getting left behind in america that's the phrase we've been left behind
2: yeah, it's uh, what we call aggrieved entitlement. <laughs> it's the idea that you are entitled to certain things um, simply by based upon your identity. You have a birthright to various things. And when those things don't happen, you're very aggrieved uh, about it. And this is the you know, this is Trump's playbook. Um, the fact that we elect our first black president, and then immediately after that, we elect a man who's tapping into aggrieved entitlement, who was the head of the birther movement, those two things are intimately connected. Um, we have seen aggrieved entitlement kind of brought to the surface by various politicians um, over many years, but we've never seen it so intensely brought out. Um, I mean, it, it, that is Trump's message, right? Um, and who are these folks? Well, these are by and large. Uh, white, white folks, uh, men, uh, folks who have resources who believe that, you know, they they want if you look at the slogan, uh, make America great again, which actually has has its origins as a KKK slogan, we don't talk about that. Uh, But what they're what they're calling for is a return you know when when was America great? They're calling for a return to an America where women and people of color uh, did not have the power that they have now. So as a, one kind of silver lining of this is, anytime uh, the social order fundamentally shifts, and it is fundamentally shifting now, um, we are seeing more women, more people of color in positions of power. We're seeing traditionally marginalized group groups making progress. Because that progress is real, and because it actually fundamentally shifts the social order, uh, we are seeing a a lot of pushback against that. We're seeing a backlash against that. And how is that coming out? It's coming out through grieved entitlement. And, you know, Republicans are really good at playing upon fear and using emotional politics. Democrats try to speak to the mind and provide facts and figures and policy and data. uh, And it just doesn't, it cannot counter the emotional fear that comes from believing that a society is shifting in ways that leave you behind
0: and you have to have when you're left behind and that's if nothing else if that's the perception you've got to get angry and if they're going to succeed the folks on the right need to keep you angry keep you dissatisfied. Nothing is ever good enough, and anything good that happens has to be put down in in some way that seems distorted because if you give somebody a a plotted for a job well done and they have a D after their name, you're hurting your cause. These these ships are always passing and scraping each other's hulls in the middle of the night, it seems to me. And up ahead, is that an iceberg?
2: You know, Gary, that's a great that's a great analogy or metaphor, right? Um, it's, I have deep grief over, um, where we are. And I know, as I've mentioned, you know, a lot of Trump folks, those are my people. It's where I grew up. There's a, a the little town I grew up in um, has a lot of, you know, the birthplace of patriot prayer, has a lot of uh, white supremacists, has a lot of folks who are, are, um, you know, violently pro-Trump, I would say. And it's important to, to point out that uh, two things that have happened in the Republican Party um since trump's ascension um one is that uh the great replacement theory or the white replacement theory that was being espoused in charlottesville with the khakis and the, the tiki torches uh you know the, you will not replace us the jews will not replace us this ridiculous conspiracy theory that the jews are uh trying to get uh marginalized groups women people of color into positions of power right so it's it white supremacy at its finest, right? Overtly white supremacy. Um, That theory is now held by 70% of the Republican Party. So it's moved from the, the uh, over white supremacy, the tiki tortures, the murder of Heather Heyer and Charlottesville to now being a mainstream part of the Republican Party. And the second thing that is even more fearful, um, I think, is, is the action behind it, which is that one in three Republicans believe that violence may be necessary uh, in politics. And so you put those two things together. Um, I have watched so many friends and family members Go down this rabbit hole of fear, as you point out. And online sources give you a steady stream of that. Um, there's no easy fix. We would need to regulate social media companies the way that we, we regulate other big utilities because they are playing a massive role in this. They are, as we know from internal reports, uh, Facebook and other big companies are monetizing fear politics because that's what gets the clicks and the eyeballs and makes the money. So we have this, uh, you know, this capitalist. Uh, neutral system of social media being used in a profoundly uh, damaging way to our democracy in order to make money. And so it it's a big fix. It's a long-term fix. Uh, and I, again, have, have deep grief over watching the effects of the propaganda on so many people I love.
1: It was interesting thinking about um, the conservatives being so angry all the time and, and I was thinking, you know, other than an occasional um, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, you don't see a lot of that same anger on the uh, Democratic side. And then last night we were watching the news and we saw John Stewart, who was enraged about the Republicans that would not vote the benefits for um, the, the veterans who had been exposed to stuff that was killing their lungs and killing them and um and boy was he on a tear and and i thought isn't that interesting you know democrats yelling and screaming and you know maybe we need a little bit more of that on the other side instead of being so passive
2: well suzanne it's definitely happening in my circles with roe um there are a lot of really angry women uh, around this, and I, I went to a Republican uh, a function with a lot of Republican women right after Roe was overturned. There was also anger there. And Granted, I'm in California, so that's not representative of Republican women, but it there I think we might be our anger levels may be going up as it's clear that the majority doesn't rule in the United States, and so I would imagine that 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 anger will you know, maybe not match the constantly drummed up and supported anger on the right. Um, That, of course, is not the answer. That doesn't get us out of this. I think it's interesting what John Stewart was raging against. It was a bill that had passed a couple of months ago, but there was a technical problem with it. And it was to provide resources for veterans who uh, had health issues, including cancer from open pit burns. Um, and so it was a kind of open shut, shouldn't have been a partisan issue. Uh, interesting to see how we got there all in one day. So uh, it, so Mitch McConnell got out Mitch McConnell, right? So you have um, the Democrats, um, Saying with Joe Manchin saying, we're never going to pass this water down, build back better, you know, this, this health care and environmental policy. We're never going to pass, uh, we're not going to get this bill passed. It's Uh, So everyone had Manchin pegged that way. And so uh, there was a bill that came up first with the CHIPS bill to help support our competition uh, with China around uh, semiconductors, right, and and other technology. Uh, So the Republicans said, we will vote on this, but we assume that you're going to, but that's only if you vote no on this, this watered down build back better bill. And so Manchin goes in, so they get the Republican votes on the CHIPS bill, check they go in and all of a sudden Manchin does a, you know, 180 and he supports this bill and the Republicans get so angry about extending, you know, make, making prescription drug prices lower and finally addressing the climate crisis uh, that, that that bill passed that they then went and retaliated by voting against this, which should have been an open and shut case with the support for veterans health care. And I know that's a little complicated, but yeah, Mitch McConnell got out Mitch McConnell uh by you know a west virginia senator and uh the republicans it looks like their revenge will go even further they're now planning to maybe take down uh, you know not the senate that same-sex marriage protections have passed in the house but they're now in jeopardy in the senate because they are so angry about the passage of this environmental legislation and healthcare legislation
1: taking the vote however they will be on record which is, I think, going to be somewhat useful in the midterm elections. Absolutely. What they're for and what they are not for. And uh, it's important here because uh, we've got Val Demings running against Marco Rubio in Florida. And Marco's one of those people that doesn't even show up for work, but he does like getting his paycheck. (laughs) So, you know, it would be great if if we could capture that seat and... uh, Even though the odds don't look good, you know, I'm hoping with some of these crazy votes that they can capitalize on that.
0: As the late John McCain used to say, make them famous. Someone who's already famous and welcome at our table anytime, Dr. Caroline Heldman. Thank you so much, my friend. We'll talk again.
2: Always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: All right. We hope that you have a wonderful weekend, everybody. 1 p.m. Out there in the Pacific, Trip Talk. Enjoy that. We'll be back tomorrow, 10 a.m. Pacific and 1150kknw.com with another edition of Manson Mitchell. Have yourselves a great weekend, everyone.